when there's no clock outside, you're blessed when the preacher uses his smartphone as a paperweight in case it's windy, but we don't have any wind today. That's great. Well, as always, I'm delighted to be with you again today. It's good to see all of you again, and we'll begin what is historically known as the Advent season next Sunday. So today might be considered pre-Advent. We're anticipating the season when we will anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and celebrating this great historic event. Lord willing, next week as I'm with you again, we're going to be looking at a rather familiar passage from Luke chapter 2. But today, as we are on the brink of the Advent season, but not quite there, but anticipating it, I'd like for us to revisit the prophecy of Micah one more time. If you were with us virtually back in August, you'll recall that I was uh, preaching three Lord's Days in a row. We were looking at the final chapter, the seventh and last chapter of this great uh, prophecy. And you'll also remember that I noted over the span of those messages that there are several texts within the book of Micah that are unmistakably and clearly messianic in, in nature. We looked at how it is that Israel and Judah bore the consequences of their sins in the world, and they were contending with the various miseries that are the result of this. And even the remnant of the Lord's chosen ones had great sin and yet great hope that God would do for them something saving, ultimately in the form of one who would come as a king who would supersede all rulers who had come before him and who pointed to him. We saw how Micah's great vision of a time that Israel would experience in the future like unto a greater time in their past all served to preview the great work of this great and mighty king and the hope that they had in being delivered by him and how it is that these messianic prophecies pre-depict their great hope as the Lord's own. And so today, I would like to zero in on what I believe to probably be the most specifically messianic passage, verse 2 of chapter 5, but I'm going to read in your hearing, and we will consider in the broader scope, verses 1 through 5a. That's a little bit awkward, but the in the Hebrew, the first, what we know to be the first sentence of chapter 5 really fits more appropriately with the previous stanza as this is poetry. So it'll be verses 1 through 4 in the first portion of verse 5. Let's give attention now to God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. Now muster your troops, O daughters, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. 
This is God's word, and his truth before all times firmly stood and shall from age to age endure. Let's pray. Father, take now these words by the power of your Spirit and write them irremovably upon our hearts. And may we not merely be hearers, but may we be doers. For you are good and kind to reveal yourself to us, and we praise you and ask that you would have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. I've titled today's message, Now Proclaim Messiah's Birth, borrowing those words from that famous Christmas carol by Henry Smart and John Montgomery, Angels from the Realms of Glory. This is particularly appropriate, not only because of the subject matter um, and something that is captured as it is predicted eight centuries or so before it actually occurs, and we still celebrate it today. But in particular, I borrow those words as appropriate because of the presence at the very beginning of verse 1 of the term now, uh, a word in the original that focuses on what is occurring in the present. And that's, that's significant because if we look back at the greater context into verse 9 of chapter 4, and also verse 11, you'll notice that those verses also begin with the very important word, now. Some translations leave this out, but I think it's imperative. Uh, Now, why do you cry aloud, verse 9 of chapter 4? Is there no king in you? The prophet is zeroing in on the peril of their situation as their king can no longer protect them in the face of the consequences of their sin. Verse 11 of chapter 4, now many nations are assembled against you. This problem is going to take shape in a very visible way as your adversaries press in upon you. Those are two crucial nows. Those nows usher in a sense of judgment. But this now, at the beginning of chapter 5, brings hope. Those were negative nows in chapter 4. This is a positive now. This is a now as we round the corner that gives hope to the people of God. Now muster your troops oh yes there's still danger but something good is coming there's a hopeful proclamation in the essence of good news that is before them i have a first cousin to whom i'm very close probably the cousin to whom i was closest growing up she's three years older than me she was the only child of my sister of mother's younger sister and her husband And I remember that Paula had in her bedroom uh, this framed piece of art. I don't know who did this for the family, but it's very lovely. And it had this nice artistic work on the border. And there's a trumpeteer and uh, whatever the artist had in his own mind as envisioning angelic beings are there. And what this is, is a proclamation of her birth. Proclaim the birth of Paula Gay Switzer, born June 22nd, 1965, to Billy Switzer and Bobby Jean Switzer, LaFleur County Greenwood Hospital, and so forth and so on, uh, size and length and all of these things. And I, I always thought that was, it was very special, because I'd never seen anyone with a birth 
proclamation hanging on their bedroom wall before. We, we like the details of such proclamations. We get word that the baby was born. It was a girl. It weighed 6 pounds 11 ounces. It was 19 inches long, what have you. Mother and daughter are fine. We just, we're overjoyed when we get such details in birth proclamations. We often pose the question, what's in a name? This text begs of us, what's in a birth proclamation more accurately? What's in a birth prediction? What's in a birth preview that comes to us in proclamatory form? And there's a great deal here. And when we approach this, it is as if we are looking at God's artwork and we're getting the details that are coming one day of the birth of the one who will redeem Israel from her sins. And so I would give you the following summation as a theme of this passage. I enjoyed back in August when we were online and Randy asked me as he was doing to put a major theme summary and an outline. It sort of reminded me of preaching class in seminary. We used to have to do that. It's it's very mechanical, but it's a, a good thing to do. So I've I'm in the habit of doing that now because I never know exactly what format we're going to be using. But the thematic overarching emphasis today would be something like this. The kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. And those are Handel's words from the Messiah. But you'll notice that as we look at this text as well as our text next week, we're going to be looking at that inextricable link in terms of the co-eternality and substance of God the Father and God the Son as something very crucial. The kingdom of the Lord, that is Yahweh, and of His Christ, that's the Messiah, will be established not because things appear well in the world, nor because mankind has some innate capacity to secure his own security and peace, but because God has promised good to his people. Those are John Newton's words from Amazing Grace. And his God and ours cannot be kept from bringing such blessings to pass. Things looked bad in Judah. Things were not well in Israel. We look around today and things don't look so good. But God is the same, and His promises are still binding. And there is nothing in the created order over which He is sovereign that will ever thwart His purposes or bring them from coming to pass. There is good in store, and these glorious realities to which we ultimately have a view here are those that I'd like to look at in three points. First of all, In verses 1 and 3a, we see the coming Messiah will eliminate sin's guilt and power. This Messiah foretold is one who is going to deliver Israel not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. Do you remember Augustus Toplady's great hymn and that line in there, the Rock of Ages, Be of sin the double cure, save me from this guilt and power. Jesus is going to come and he is going to work so as to take care of what is due before the bar of God's justice. But he's also going to deliver his own from the dominion of sin. He's going to give them true freedom and liberate them from that which holds sway over them in their current state of sinfulness. 
And we're going to see here in a moment how there's a parallel that even as God's people, because of their sin, feel abandonment, the great Messiah is going to come and he will deliver them from that enmity of which we read moments ago in the service in Genesis 3. He's going to take care of the sin problem by himself enduring a season of abandonment uh, like unto that of Israel being given up, as verse 3a says, for a time. And so we begin by looking at the details of this historically. The original language is a bit challenging in verse 1 as to both the exact meaning of the instruction as well as who Jerusalem or Zion, referred to here by the term daughter, uh, is expected to, to face. We don't really know who the enemy is. There's been a lot of debate about this. Is this in context a reference to the Assyrian siege upon Jerusalem in 701 B.C.? Is it the the downfall of Zedekiah? Is it Jehoiakim's yielding to the Babylonians? There's a lot of back and forth about this. It's not so as important that we know who the enemy is as we understand that there is an enemy. And all of this depicts and shows how it is that Israel is in a situation from which she cannot deliver herself precisely because of sin and disobedience. I noted in August, if you were with us, that uh, the enemies of Israel often used the feminine to mock Israel and to depict her in a perceived way as as weak somehow and and not being able to defend herself. And and that's really what we have here. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. This this word we translate troops here literally could be a a fighting party or like a band of brothers. It's not a full army. The prophet is saying, uh, Israel, you, you need to go ahead and prepare for this. But by the way, whatever you're able to pull together is not going to be enough to fend off, much less defeat this particular enemy. And even the leader in Israel, the kingly figure, will be struck on the cheek with the rod of judgment. But it isn't the who as much as the that the destruction in the created order because of sin. Israel will not know victory and they cannot be delivered unless and until someone comes into that estate in which they exist, that hopelessness of circumstances with them and pulls them out. I remember Dr. Mark Ross saying in reference to Moses and the burning bush, When God appears in the form of fire, any old bush will do. And when God is attempting to expose the sins of his Israel and to burst forth with the hope that he has for them in the coming Messiah, any old enemy will do. If you're being told to prepare and to gather together a a band of brothers or a a guard, uh, a a militia, uh, whatever term would be appropriate to convey the fact that they're going to be outnumbered and they don't have a chance, they're on the losing end of an unwinnable situation, really doesn't matter who the enemy is. But in such circumstances you will see that you are without hope unless there is one greater than all of those who have governed you to date comes brings 
deliverance. Jesus is the ultimate king, the leader who will be bruised for their iniquities and wounded for their transgressions, all the while being totally guiltless himself. Now this smiting of the Messiah is, I think, proclaimed in a very real way in the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis 3.15, to which we referred earlier. That seed of the woman will be bruised on the heel by the serpent. Prior to that seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. We think of the, the heel, the, the least part of Jesus being used there as the description of what he will undergo is, as he is doing battle for his people with the enemy. Uh, in this context, the kingly figure is referenced as one being struck on the cheek, the, the face, the, the image, the, the front, the association that most of us have most immediately because we see a face first so often with the totality of someone's being. There, there is a nexus there. There's a connection, that enmity, that discord, that disharmony that is a result of the enmity that God places there that is of a temporality, not a perpetuity, but nonetheless something that will cause great pain for God's people. This condition is playing itself out in some form here in the late 8th century B.C. in Micah's time and in his ministry for Israel's king in the south and those under his reign. The very language is indicative of the fact that long before Jesus there is an announcement, as it were, that we have long since borne witness to, that it will be the striking against that mere platoon in Judah that it cannot stand against ultimately that necessitates the rounding up or the mustering of one who would be stricken, whose visage would be marred more than any other man, to borrow Isaiah's words. And through that, there would be deliverance from sin and its dreadful consequences. Now, I join this with the beginning of verse 3, because this text sort of moves in and out of different themes, and so rather than looking at it verse by verse in the order that it comes to us, it's better to extract the portions that support the main theme by sub-themes. And verse 1 is really most connected, I would suggest, to verse 3a. Therefore, that is in light of the problem of Israel's need and the reality of verse 2 of their coming one, one day from God who will do his bidding. Therefore, by confluence of those things, what Israel is experienced at the time, given the present moment and what is coming in the future, there, there is a waiting period. There is an abandonment. There is a time where there is a sense of hopelessness. They have to endure the consequences of their own disobedience. And so it is with us in the times in which we live today. It may seem to us as though God has left us in our sin. And there's a very real sense in which he has because his justice demands that at least for a time we know separation from him because he's holy. And we endure the things that we do today because of our sin and the sins of those around us, originating with Adam and Eve. But there's also the chance for anticipation 
that we will know as the years move on, as we come closer to the time that even as Israel looked forward to the Messiah, his first advent, we long for his second when he will come and he will openly acknowledge and acquit all of those who are his. So we are waiting until the time ourselves. Now, I tend to be in the minority when in that second line in verse 3a there, when she who is in labor has given birth, to see that as the actual Virgin Mary. I know uh, the daughter Zion references earlier, particularly in verse 10 of chapter 4, most commentators say that this is a reference to uh, the time over which one will eventually come to Jerusalem through the line of David. That's certainly true. But I tend to agree with Dr. Ralph Davis when he says, if Yahweh gives them up, that is the nation, including the remnant, then the she that immediately follows more naturally designates an individual. Again, that's a real substantive component of a birth proclamation. We even are told who the mother will be, even though we're not given a name Per se. There is a woman coming of God's appointment who will deliver the Messiah. It's hard to swallow the idea of being given up by God until the ordained and appointed time of his blessing. But this prophecy continues to fulfill the requirements, if you will, of that placement of enmity between God and mankind because God's holiness demands that there be a separation from himself. Accordingly, we need to see God's mercy here as Israel's God works so as to make that abandonment only temporary. This is the Messiah's task. In the face of sin, the coming Messiah, therefore, will deliver Israel. And as she waits, expectant of the birth of the one who will rule Israel and to be his king, there is even hope because we understand as we look back that that abandonment... Uh, that that one who would come to be the rescuer, that he would undergo such a beating, as it were, and he too would know estrangement from the God from whom we have estranged ourselves. Israel is guilty before God and powerless before God, and the coming Messiah will eliminate that guilt and power as he is born and lives lawfully and dies sacrificially upon the cross. Remember in Matthew 27, we read those famous words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Echoing David's words in Psalm 22. And all of the kings that proceeded from David, be it Ahaz or Jotham, whoever, whomever is in the mix, whomever Micah 5 is talking about, they would have had to declare the same thing. This sense of forsakenness. And as Jesus says those words, you realize that he is feeling more given up for a time than anyone ever had or ever will. And there's great hope in that. You and I will never endure what Jesus endured. And I found that that's the linchpin of any good counseling in pastoral work. You'll meet many people from different walks of life who have been through some unimaginable things. But at the end of the day, whatever the issue, it always circles back around to our realization that we will never experience anything 
like the coming Messiah experienced in order that we might not be given over for eternity, but that that span of time, that estrangement might end and we might be one with our Creator. So we need to look to the birth of Jesus sobered by the reality that ultimately He has come for death. He has come to take on the wages of sin. My friend, the Reverend Danny Hall, says our greatest fear around Christmas time is, is not that we miss the message altogether with commercialization, but rather that we will come to some realization of what is actually being fulfilled at Christmas time, given the Old Testament prophecies, but we will be sentimental about it. We will be a bit syrupy, and we will have a tendency to clean up the real purposes for which the Christ child was born, but that he was born to set his people free, and this means death. He, he comes into, as it were, the arena of death. It is as if, on some level, Sheol is the very locale of his birth. He's born in the lowest of places with nothing there for him. No room in the end. There is nothing clean in the stable. He comes into the power of the law in a very pronounced way that just smacks of the insufficiencies of anything temporal and how it is that as he goes all the way to the bottom, he rises victorious over death and all that it can mean for people. I remember the account that S. Barton Babbage gave years ago in Christianity Today of a man, an older Jewish man, who was a witness at the Nuremberg war crime trials, and he had escaped the gas chamber, and the only place he could find refuge was in an old Jewish cemetery. So he was safe there, and he worked as a grave digger. And at one point, he was well into his 80s, there was a younger Jewish woman who had done the same thing, had sought refuge there, and she was giving birth to a son. And there was no one else around, and so this old grave digger had to assist with the birth of this Jewish boy. And Babbage says, when the old Jewish grave digger heard the first cry of the baby, he exclaimed, Good God, hast thou finally sent the Messiah to us? For who else other than the Messiah can be born in a grave? And there's something true about that. Our Messiah who has come, he must come under the circumstances that surround death. Otherwise, we have no victor. And as the enemy closes in around us, the one that needs to be mustered and called forth for us is one who must be a sure victor. And this is he. I think of Hebrews 12, at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 2, he endured the cross, despising its shame, Jesus came with a great detestation for everything that sin meant for those whom he loved eternally and for the joy set before him did whatever it took to fight that off and bring victory for his own and sat down on the right hand of the throne 
of God. Well, this in so doing, as the Father turns away, this is His being given up to deliver His people from the penalty of sin, but to free them from its power, to bind the enemy forever, and to begin to bring them to the new place of the freedom of the soul before Himself. Well, secondly, we see that the coming Messiah will initiate His reign and oversight. This is so beautiful. We're looking here at verses 2, 3b, and 4a. In verse 2, the prophet begins with a conjunction, but... Uh, that sets the one foretold against the conditions into which he is actually coming. Israel is in a deep peril, unable to deliver herself without hope, if she's leaning on whoever the king is at that point. But from Bethlehem will come one who bears several characteristics and who will do several things. And in verses 2, 3b, and 4a, there are five major things that we note. Uh, first of all, he will come from an insignificant place, but as we'll see in a moment, it's actually the place of ultimate significance. Secondly, he will come for God. And the usage of the term for there as opposed to from is significant. Thirdly, he will rule. Fourthly, he is coming from of old or in ancient days. And fifthly, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, and in the majesty of that same name. And so it is by a confluence of all of these attributes and actions, or as we might say, utterings and undertakings, that we come face to face with the one I'll call the ruler shepherd. I referred to him as the shepherd king when we were looking at Micah chapter 7, but I think it's more appropriate to say the ruler shepherd. And this is so so important because what we have in these realities, dear friends, is the absolute beauty of the combination, the balance of both the transcendence and the eminence of God. And most people veer toward one to the neglect of the other. Their God is transcendent. He is above all things, and they forget His nearness and how much He loves them. And sometimes the focus is on His eminence or the fact that He is very real and present and and down here in sin circumstances with us that we forget that He's God, that He's above all things. And here we have the One who is above you and with you. The One who is over you, but also by you, and it's essential that we maintain that sense of balance in that view of our God and King, because if we have the transcendence without the eminence, we will never have a sense of assurance of His love and favor. If we have the eminence without the transcendence, we run the risk of bringing Him down off of those things that make Him majestically distinctive, and you'll have all manner of things as happened back in the 19th century, as liberal theology began out of basically having forgotten something of the transcendence of God. So let's make our way through these five observations very briefly. I just want to make a few comments. First of all, verse 2, Bethlehem Ephratah. Ephratah is simply an older name for uh, Bethlehem used in earlier times. And it's described here as being too little or too small to be among the clans of Judah. 
Now, if you go to Joshua chapter 15 and you read verses 21 through 63, you'll see there are over 100 cities that were given to Judah, and Bethlehem Ephratah didn't make the cut. Now, our tendency is to come away from such observations and say things like, well, you know, God is a God who loves to use no names and no places to do great things. Well, that that is certainly true. But there's more than that here on the mind of the prophet as he is writing this. It's not merely that it's a, a place that wasn't that popular or didn't make the Chamber of Commerce list of places to visit by tourists, but he's establishing a real connection, not just geographically, but spiritually, between the king who was once anointed and through whose line have come all of these failures as kings who cannot stand up against enemies, and how it is that beyond that will come one who finally can stand up against them. This is not just a report of an arbitrary chronological parallel, but it's the fulfillment of an actual covenantal promise. It's the very nexus of that promise. It connects David and Jesus, not just geographically, but spiritually. If the one on the throne in Jerusalem is under siege, then what that means is, in that day, there's nothing left in the line of David for their hope. And so what happens is, hope must be found in returning to the very place of the failed dynasty and starting over with the promise issued then and there. That's the Davidic covenant. The making sure of the house of David and his kingdom, spoken of in 1 Samuel 7.16, and the establishment of his throne forever necessitates a return to the same place for the realization of the promise's fulfillment. God knew when he instituted unilaterally the Davidic administration of the covenant that David and those after him would fail. But it's not just coincidence that the ultimate good and mighty king who will rule and shepherd his people comes from the same place. You see, Jesus' very birth in Bethlehem solidifies the continuity of the covenant. And so therefore with that, it's not an insignificant little place off the way, but it's highly significant historically. That that one who would sit on the throne forever when David is installed, years later would also have the same birthplace. That's the connection between kings who have failed, who have come up wanting, and the one who will never fail his people because he rules them and defends them as their king and he pastors them as their shepherd. You have the the governor who's a pastor, And you have the tender, kind, good shepherd who's a ruler. You have both. And that's the blessing. Then in verse 2, we also see that the predicted Messiah will come forth for me. That is, on behalf of Yahweh. And this is important because as the one to be the ruler in Israel comes forth, he does so to rule and to shepherd, and he does it for 
Yahweh. That is to say, he conducts the affairs of the one who sent him. He's not only from God, but he is for God as God. The ruler shepherd comes to do the work of Yahweh, the activities of Yahweh pertaining to the covenant of grace. He comes from of old, and we find a couple of words that are significant here. That old is the the kadem in the Hebrew. We might think of this as the old lang syne or the old long time. That word is used in reference to things that go way back in the history of something, a people, a group, or a nation. But by the employment of the Yeme Olam, which we translate the ancient days, I would argue that Micah is is pressing uh, past mere history and is denoting times not just in great antiquity, but all the way back past the periods that have been previously known, the judges, the patriarchal times, even pre-Adam and Eve and creation and what? All the way back into eternity past and you'll find that yeme olam in places like psalm 74 12 or habakkuk 112 where there is more than mere history at play but we need to see that this one who's coming for yahweh is the same as yahweh he is equal in power and glory and in substance so this is not just one who is coming from god or who is like God, this is God coming. And he is to do the work of the one who sends him. He is to implement, he is to carry out that which they have agreed upon in the covenant of redemption from before the world's beginning. And this is mind-boggling to think God has no beginning. And the king who comes, who can defeat any warrior, who can take care of anyone who threatens his people, he is no less God than he. We're getting a glimpse in the late 8th century B.C. of what St. Athanasius would say so many centuries later in his great statement, there was not, when the Logos was not, that is running through this prophecy. This is the essence of Israel's hope. If human kings have failed them, then a divine king must deliver them. This prophecy can only be fulfilled by Christ, and the Christ by whom it must be fulfilled must be no less God than the one from whom He comes forth. You see, the expectation of Israel, her hope, is that eventually the house of Israel will be ruled over By God Himself. God will reign over His people in the person of His appointed ruler. And if they are to have maintained on their behalf for their own peace of conscience and joy, they must understand that that ruler, what that means is the one sent from God, is God Himself. That is the only way that the realization of God reigning over His people can ultimately be brought to pass. And this ruler is an overseer. The Messiah will come to initiate his reign, but also his oversight. That's what a shepherd does. That's what an under-shepherd does. Those of us who serve as elders in Christ's church, we are known as under-shepherds. We are tasked with 
shepherding on behalf of the good shepherd. And you think of all the bad shepherds that are out there. And you think of the good shepherd. This is a king. This is a, a, a monarch, a sovereign beyond all sovereigns. And he deals with his people as a shepherd caring for sheep, foolish sheep who wander off, who stray and who, who get themselves into traps out in the fields. And the shepherd literally has to come and to pick them up and to pull them out of those traps and to care for them. This is the particularity of this ruler shepherd. What a blessing it is for us to serve one who is truly divine, who makes no mistakes, who is without error, but also who is gentle and kind to those who do not deserve it. Again, that's that transcendence and the eminence. You must tremble before God, but you will have no hope and no peace if you don't understand that that God in the Messiah, He loves you. He is for you. And He tenderly oversees you. He compassionately cares for you. He functions in the strength of the Lord and, verse 4a, in the majesty of the name, that is the sovereign authority, that all that that name means, He is one with the one who has sent Him. And therefore, He functions in that sovereign authority. And He's going to be gracious and He's going to be kind. And as verse 3b says, not only to those who are there and hearing Micah's words, but from the diaspora, those who have been dispersed and scattered all over because of their sin, the rest of His brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Those sheep who have wandered off. Those who have gone their own way, He will bring them back. Does it not excite you as we prepare for Advent that we serve one who pursues those who have wandered off and in that we see something of His graciousness in ways that we cannot see otherwise? And so here is the one coming, the perfect ruler who is a shepherd, who is no less God than the one for whom He comes We begin to see that in our vital union with Him, we have everything that He has accomplished for us. And He institutes and initiates and conveys to us all of those blessings. I love Richard Sibbs. I affectionately refer to him uh, as an establishment Puritan. He was very solid, but he didn't leave the Anglican church. He was loyal to the king. In his third volume, he writes this, God is in covenant with us in Christ. He is the object of our trust, or else there is such a distance and contrariety between man's nature and God's. Since the fall from the covenant of works, we cannot be saved by that. But he hath vouched safe to be ours in a better covenant with Christ, in whom all the promises are yea and amen. This good comes to us from God by Christ. Christ first receives it, and he derives it to us as our elder brother and as our head. So now we trust in him as God, the Father of Christ, is reconciled. 
centuries later, Sibs is capturing the essence of what is described here in this very proclamation, that Christ, no less God than the Father, comes and he seals the covenant of grace. He makes sure that his people will be safe, that they will return, as it were, to their homeland, that they will know shalom between themselves and God. It all begins at Bethlehem. It is seen by men, time foretold, and we experience his benefits even to this day. And this leads to our third and final point in verses 4b and verse 5a, that the coming Messiah will inaugurate earth's security and peace. The coming Messiah will inaugurate earth's security and peace. His subjects shall dwell secure. And they will, why? Again, because he has stood and shepherded his flock. I, I, I love that. Going back a bit into verse 4a, uh, he, he stands, uh, he advocates. What, what a picture of, of what the Messiah will do to vouch for his people. When you read that, you can't help but think of Acts 7, verse 56, when the Sanhedrin has had enough of the first deacon, Stephen. And what does he do as he's about to be stoned? He looks into the heavens and he sees the Son of Man standing. That this shepherd ruler who stands in Micah's day and would come later in the first century and would stand on behalf of the Stephens of the world that at your end and at mine, mine, he will stand and he will vouch for you. As R.C. Sproul said, on that day, he will stand by me and he will say, Father, this one is mine. That's what you have in this shepherd. And dwelling secure in verse 4b, the, the term there, the yasab, literally means to sit And so what we have here is that the standing ruler shepherd does so in order that his people may be made to sit. They may take their place and sit down securely in his kingdom. We run into one more now here in the midst of verse 4. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. His renown are going to reach out to all nations and tribes of the world that's what i mean when i say that he will inaugurate earth's security and peace this is not some general idea of world peace but specific peace for his people that there will be none way out in the most vast regions of the earth that are far less known than those that are more densely populated his people are there And he brings them security and he brings them peace. And notice he says he shall be their peace. He himself is that peace. He is their shalom. He is their irene. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is our peace even as he is our resurrection our life, our truth, our way, our life. He is all of those things. Francis Fenelon, the French archbishop and theologian of the 17th century, said, Jesus alone 
is our peace. We are united to Him as Savior. He subdues his passion, our passions. He controls our desires. He consoles us with the love of Christ. He gives us joy even in sorrow. And this is a joy that cannot be taken away. He is our peace. And He has seated us in those heavenly places. And now we know in part, then we shall know in full when we take our seat as that one stands in eternity on our behalf. Now, we struggle, again, in in such times as the ones we're living in now with peace and security. We wonder what's around the corner. We don't know what the future holds. We try to comfort ourselves as best we can with the promises of God. But I think that when we consider the dwelling secure of God's people and the coming Messiah being their peace, we would do well to consider who he is in all of his aspects, in all of his attributes that we can't fully know, but to focus on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he is the perfect fulfillment of all of the demands of the law. And when you think about having peace, think of the fact that you are, as Paul says in Colossians 3, 3, you are hidden with Christ in God. That if you've come to faith in the coming Messiah, that you have been ushered into an estate, and it is a reality that can be said about you that you are in Him, and you are are hidden, You, you are safe, in who He is and all that He does. I like the way Walter Knight illustrated this one time when he used the iceberg. You know, everyone was surprised when the Titanic went down, when it hit the iceberg in 1912. And we look at icebergs and we think, well, that's just that piece of ice floating out there. I mean, how could something hit that that's built so well and come apart? And you notice as you study icebergs in the North Atlantic, it's really remarkable. I mean, the, the waves toss uh, ships about, and uh, there are all kinds of problems. But, but icebergs, the waves can splash up against them, and they're just there like majestic white castles. They seem to glide placidly through the heaving sea. They seem to be defiant of anything that comes against them. They are towering over it, and they are the victors. And the reason for that is the vast majority of icebergs are hidden beneath the surface of the water. Some icebergs have no more than one-tenth of their essence exposed above the water. So what we see seems remarkably insignificant to fend off anything that would come against it. Because it runs deep and it is solid and it goes way down into the ocean, it is immovable. And friends, we see of Jesus what He has revealed. But the truth of the matter is the vast majority of His greatness we're yet to see. But if you are in Him, you are safe in the One who is like an iceberg because He came to those who needed deliverance in the midst of battle. He was the ultimate troop mustered. He was the one who came on behalf of sinners and knew separation from God for a time as they had 
but only more so. And he is the one who has risen on high, out of the grave, over death. And he has led captivity captive. And he reigns today and is still kind, a good shepherd to his own. And all manner of things in his created order come against him and splash up against him. And he is immovable. And if you are hidden in him, you are also hidden away with that part of him that cannot be seen until that day. And that's your security. And that's your peace. All kinds of things can come against this Messiah. But they don't stand a chance. He is immovable. And the fiercest of all that is in His creation loses against Him. But those for whom He advocates, they win. Oh, no wonder Spurgeon said, I've learned to bless the waves who cause me to crash against the rock of ages. And that ultimately, beloved, is what we find in this great proclamation of a birth. And wouldn't we do well to hang it upon the wall of our hearts? Let's pray. Gracious God, who is eternal and who is unchangeable and who loves us such that you have condescended to us in our time of need in the form of a great ruler, shepherd who is for you to reign over us graciously and to care for us and to seat us in security and peace before Yourself. Oh, what wondrous news. Oh, what unfathomable love. Oh, what riches of character and of hope. We ask that even now, by Your Spirit, You would persuade and enable us to embrace this One Know that knowing that in who He is, all of who He is runs deep and cannot be defeated. And if we are dead to self and trusting in Him, we have no more enemies, for He has bound our ultimate enemy. And we have safety with Him if we are hidden with Him who is invisible. And we are at peace with the One who has sent Him. Thank You for coming, Lord Jesus, and being for Your Father who sent You. And in so doing, being for the likes of us to give us hope and a future and to cause us to, in the midst of anything that we are facing, know that as we round this corner and say, now we proclaim the Messiah's birth, judgment has not been ushered into us but great hope and everlasting life. Amen.